And we're dealing with the most comprehensive chapter on marriage, but not just marriage. Uh, we have information about widows, and we have information about abandonment. We have information about divorce. And so there's uh, going to be something here for everyone. And if it doesn't directly apply to you, just think about it this way. It's an opportunity for you to learn how you might minister to someone who's going through something who maybe has a question about these things. So we all can learn, okay? So we're going to read the passage. It's 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, But this I say, 1 Corinthians 7, 6, by way of concession, not command, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as myself, as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she, sh she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, may the Lord write his word upon our hearts. Obviously, this is very clear instruction. You don't have any questions, so we can just call it a day. <laughs> Go watch the Super Bowl. No, just kidding. <laughs> Let's pray. We need all the help we can get. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Sometimes upon reading something at first, we can have all kinds of questions, and that's why we come together to study the Word of God. We need clarity, we need context, we need understanding, and so I do pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear what your Spirit says to your church through your Word, that we would not worry too much about what the culture says about these questions. We would worry about what you say about this, Lord, and we would obey you. And we would understand that there is forgiveness no matter where we find ourselves today, whether we've done it right or wrong, whether we've made our mistakes, whether we're wondering where we stand today, that, Lord, your gospel, the good news of hope in Christ, the forgiveness in Jesus of every sin we've ever committed or will commit, if we're a believer, would put salve on the wounds where there are wounds and bring clarity, Lord, where we need clarity. So I pray that this time would be fruitful in light of your kingdom. In Jesus' name and for your glory and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, for Paul, 1 Corinthians 7 was very personal. In fact, scholars would argue that Paul lived a lot of his answers. And you all know that there's a power in, uh, if you've lived something, if you've gone through something, and then you minister to somebody about their situation, there's a power in that. 
And when Paul addresses questions about marriage, he has lived some of this. For example, we do know that Paul, with the religious status that he had before his conversion, was in all likelihood a married man. And somewhere along the way, he lost his wife. Now, we don't know what happened. We don't know if she, upon hearing that he had become a Christian, left him. Maybe she said, I want a divorce. Uh, maybe, you know, the marriage ended that way. We can talk about what rights uh, people had at this time, but it's possible that maybe she just left. Maybe she couldn't take it. It's also possible that she died somewhere along the way. And that when Paul writes in the current status, responding to a letter that the Corinthians had written and other things that he wanted to address, that he was a single man. He may have been divorced. He may have been a uh, widower. And he was addressing questions about marriage and coming at it from the standpoint of trying to address specific situations. So 1 Corinthians 7 is personal for Paul, and I think it's personal probably for just about every one of us. Because these studies, when we talk about intimacy and marriage, we talk about marriage and divorce, you know, it's right where we live. And it's some of the hardest things that we have to live out. We have questions, we have confusion. We've probably somewhere along the line let uh, a spouse down or hurt one another or something like that. And I will tell you this, that I believe that you need to be aware that the enemy works overtime in spiritual warfare right in your marriage. So I just want that to sink into your heart for a second because the oneness in marriage is a picture of the gospel. And the enemy is always working overtime to muddy the gospel. Jesus, before he died, for his disciples, prayed for the oneness of the church. He said that we would be one, that the world would know. When they were arguing about which one of them would be the greatest, Jesus said, look, this is not the way that you're to conduct yourselves. In fact, he said, all men, all mankind will know that you belong to me in your love one for another. And nowhere in life is love lived out in the closest quarters in the everyday life of the ups and downs in marriage. And we've said that marriage is really the school of discipleship. Marriage is the place where you will be challenged about how you love. And your love will not be challenged when everything's good in life. Your love, your commitment to your spouse is going to be challenged, your covenant, when things are not easy when you've had the bad days or the bad weeks, when you've gotten into a, uh, a fight, uh, a verbal disagreement, uh, it's descended into a shouting match, or you've hurt one another, or you're so flabbergasted that you're ready to give up, and maybe some of you even mouth the words, I want a divorce. That would be nothing new to those who do marriage counseling. We warn against that, we tell people not to do it, but in moments of frustration, we've probably all done it. Maybe you're here and you've gone through a divorce. Maybe you've been married multiple times. Maybe right now you're separated. I know with this room and this number of people, there's all these different possibilities. There was so much confusion in Corinth about marriage that some people had decided that maybe the best, most spiritual life is celibacy. And they even, some of them apparently decided that if I'm married to somebody, maybe now that I'm a Christian, the best alternative that I have is to be celibate. And so I told you last week that it, it appears, reading between the lines, that some people in Corinth had come home to their spouse and said, I've now decided I'm going to be celibate, but they were married. And it put 
so much strain on the marriage. And couples were uh, apparently not coming together in intimacy regularly. And the enemy was getting a foothold. Verse 5, Paul says, chapter 7, Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again here in intimacy. And again, we have some mature content in this message. So that Satan, notice, will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Bible students, there is a Satan. He is a tempter. And if you resist him, firm in your faith, he will flee from you. He will flee from your marriage. He will flee from your uh, ministry, your family. If you resist him, firm in your faith, he will flee. But some of us, let's face it, have opened the door to Satan. And he's gotten a foothold in many marriages. And I, you know, the, the divorce statistics, you know, you hear some different numbers, but generally speaking, they say, at least in terms of the world, about half of marriages end in divorce. Now, you can talk about Christian marriages, people who, couples who read the Bible, pray together, and regularly intimate. The divorce statistics drop dramatically. They're probably under 5% in those cases. So you just have to do a few things, but doing those few things well is the challenge, amen? If it were easy, everybody would be doing it. If it were easy, every marriage would succeed. And oftentimes, I'm at the front of a church, and I watch the wedding day, and I often look at the groom, and the bride's coming in in her beautiful dress, and dad's making threats from the back. No, just kidding. And he's walking her down, and I look into the groom's eyes, and oh, guys that have never cried before, that's when you cry, right? Here she comes, right? It's such a beautiful moment. Nobody starts out imagining that somehow we would have an ash heap of problems and give up on each other in a matter of months or years. But let's face it. The truth is that the enemy has gotten a foothold in many marriages. And we can hurt one another and we can operate in the flesh and there can be all kinds of confusion. Maybe you have confusion. Maybe you come into this place asking, what should I do? Marriage can be tough. There's a lot of misunderstanding. I heard a story about a man and a wife They're celebrating their golden wedding anniversary, 50 years of married life, spent most of the day with relatives and friends at a big party given in their honor. They went back home at the end of the evening, decided before going to bed they'd have a little snack of tea with some bread and butter. They went into the kitchen where the husband opened up a new loaf of bread, handed the end piece, the heel, to his wife, whereupon she exploded. She said, for 50 years, you've been dumping the heel of the bread on me. Now, keep in mind, this is the day of their 50th anniversary, okay? I will not take it anymore, this lack of concern for me and what I like. On and on she went into the bitterest of terms for offering her the heel of the bread. The husband was absolutely flabbergasted, astonished at her tirade. When she had finished, he said to her quietly, but sweetheart, the heel's my favorite piece. And then she responded, boy, I feel like a heel. <laughs> I added that, but I thought it was appropriate. You ever, you ever had an interaction with your spouse and that's about how you feel? You feel like a heel. Like, what in the world just happened to me? I became goofy in the old driving videos. How many of you remember Goofy? 
He's goo, 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 and he's fine. And then he gets behind the wheel and something happens to him. He's mad at everybody. And sometimes we get in a, a marital spat and man, things can go south quickly. We can become a heel. And so Paul's going to respond to different questions about marriage and we know it's all tough. In verses 6 and 7, by way of outline, he's going to deal with singleness and celibacy. In uh, verse 8, he will deal with unmarried and widows. If you have the gift of singleness, he'll say it's good, but if you don't, he says in verse 9, then get married. In verses 10 and 11, Paul deals with those who uh, thought divorce, even to a believer, might be their best option, so that they could become single like Paul. And in verses 12 through 16, by way of outline, Paul deals with Christians who are married to unbelievers. What should they do if I have an unbelieving spouse, doesn't want to go to church, doesn't believe the same thing I do? What should I do? That's where we're headed. Let's look at verse 6. But this I say, says Paul, 7, 6, by way of concession, not of command. Now see the word this there? Scholars do not know if this, the concession, is looking back in the context or looking forward to what Paul will say. Notice, if you have a New American Standard, he uses the word, I don't say this by way of concession, I, I say this by way of concession, not of command. So a good way to think about this is Paul's uh, contrasting a concession with a command, okay? What is the concession? Some scholars, and I'll save you some time on this, believe that the concession is a mutual agreement not to be intimate in marriage for a time as is recorded in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 7. And Paul, if, in saying this is a concession, is basically saying, say these scholars, that Paul is giving a concession, but it's not a command. There's no requirement to take a break from intimacy for prayer. You, you can still pray and be intimate in your married life, and so there are those who say That's, that makes the best sense that Paul is just saying that what he laid out in verses 2 through 5, mutual consent, uh, agreed upon course of time to dedicate yourselves to prayer, maybe some difficult situation, maybe some fasting, uh, is, the is the concession. Uh, verse 7 may also be the concession. Read it with me. It says, yet... I wish that all men were even as I myself am, and Paul was single and celibate. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. There are others who believe the concession is forward-pointing to Paul's singleness. And that Paul is essentially saying, I agree with you in part that it's good for a man not to touch a woman if... He has that gift, she has that gift from God. I would agree, but I would say, says Paul, that that is a concession, not a command. I am not commanding you, Paul would say, not to be married. That's the normal mode for most people. Paul has a very high view of marriage. He appeals to the book of Genesis. He says marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. It, it becomes a testimony to the world of God's love for his bride. So Paul's saying, I'm saying that singleness is a concession, not a command. I think there is good evidence to believe that that's what Paul is talking about. There are arguments both ways. Maybe there's a little truth in both. 
but Paul is saying that this is not a command for all. Singleness is not a command for all. Notice the words, New American Standard, I wish that all were even as myself, but Paul says, I know that's not reality. Now here's a good verse to kind of supplement this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14. Look at verse 5 with me. This is a future study on the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. I want you to see the language here. I am reading from the New American Standard, but here's what Paul says. He says, now, 1 Corinthians 14, 5, good cross-reference, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, 14, 5. Greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues. Now, we'll get to that more, but here's what I want you to see. Paul says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but he will say, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, that tongues, or the gift of languages, is a grace gift, if you want to flip over to 12.9, it's a manifest, manifestation of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12.30, he says, All do not have the gift of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? The obvious answer is no. Not everybody has this gift. And then to round it out, notice why the gift would be given in the first place. Verse 7, 1 Corinthians 12. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. Paul, if you go back to chapter 7, is essentially saying this. I wish that you all had the gift of singleness because if you did, you could focus on the gospel ministry with all of your time. I wish that you had it, but I know that you all don't because singleness, please hear me well, is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It is a grace gift. It is an endowment from God. It is not something that you just have or try to do. You are either given the gift or you are not. So that's what Paul is saying is the concession. Most of you will be married and there is nothing wrong with marriage. In fact, marriage is designed by God to be a picture of the gospel. Everybody with me? So if you have the gift of singleness, it is going to be an endowment from the Holy Spirit. Some of you have that gift, but whether you have been called to marry or to remain single and serve the Lord, remember, it's a gift from God and it should be for the common good. If it's not good for you, if you don't have the gift and you're trying to be single and celibate without the gifting of the Holy Spirit, you are going to live a frustrated life. And there would be no reason for anybody to tell you, oh, that's the more spiritual life, is to be single and celibate because you give all your time to the ministry. When you don't have that gift from God, you're going to live a life of frustration. Now, let me just say this, and I'm going to say this with grace, as much grace as I can muster up. The Roman Catholic Church has gotten this wrong, where somewhere along their history, at least in a portion of the Roman Catholic Church, they forced celibacy into the priesthood. So that a priest now was mandated to be celibate and single to serve in the priesthood. But if he didn't have that gift and longed to be a priest, he's in a very tough spot, right? Because he longs to answer God's call to go into service of the Lord in that context. But he doesn't have the endowment of the Spirit to remain single. And that is an unfortunate wrong application of Paul's words here. This is where we need biblical clarity. There is no reason for a man or a woman entering into service of the Lord 
to be mandated to be single. That's not what the Bible says. That's why if you've come into a Christian church, you'd probably take note that most Christian pastors are married. And in fact, we have 1 Timothy 3 that says the elder should be the husband of one wife. There's all kinds of marriage instruction for leaders in the church. There's absolutely no reason that a leader in the church should not be married. In fact, his marriage becomes a measure of his spiritual life. And so does his family. And so Paul is just saying, look, make sure if you're going to do things this way, don't believe, let me straighten you out on verse 1 of chapter 7. <laughs> you guys got this wrong. Singleness is a gift from God just as marriage is a gift from God. Look at verse 8, chapter 7. But I say to the unmarried and to widows. He's going to address all these different categories that you could kind of mark. Here the unmarried and widows are addressed. That is good for them if they remain even as I. And remember at this time, Paul is single, celibate, and that goes with his sold outness to the gospel. See, Paul sees his singleness as an opportunity for freedom to travel the Roman world to proclaim the good tidings of the hope of the gospel without having to worry about a wife and a family. That's what he's saying. So he's saying to unmarried people and to widows, it's good if you, can, if you have the endowment, the gift from the Spirit, if you could be as I am, single and celibate. If, if, you, if that's what God has gifted you to do, then that's good. But make sure that it's something that God has allowed for you. Here's an example. Widows are mentioned here. So a widow is a person who was previously married and their spouse died. In the early church, there was a whole ministry done by widows. So widows would be those who had lost their husbands and they didn't wish to remarry. They decided to stay single and celibate and they served the church and the church served them. You can get some detail in 1 Timothy 5 on this, but there was a whole widow's ministry, and they would help the early church, and they would minister to different people, and they decided that's how they were going to live out the rest of their days. And Paul would say, that's good. If that's what God's called you to do, then that's a good thing. Someone who's unmarried here is also mentioned. The unmarried woman may be a divorced woman. And again, if that's her situation, and she can remain as she is, she has the gift of singleness, wants to serve the Lord with all of her time. She can do that. A good example is Anna, Luke 2, 36-38. She's in the temple. It says in verse 37 of Luke 2, she was a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Jesus to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Write down, if you're a note-taker, Luke 2, 36 through 38. Anna is a good example of a, a widower in the temple, always giving her time, talent, treasure, treasure holy to the Lord. That's something that you can do. If that's how God has gifted you, you can serve the Lord and not worrying about merit, being married. But you are not extra spiritual if you remain single. And that was the problem in the Corinthian church. If someone had the gift of tongues, they were saying, I'm more spiritual than you. Someone might have the gift of singleness and say, I serve the Lord with all my time. You don't. <laughs> Look, there's something wrong with that, but the apostles were arguing about that when Jesus was at the table. 
They were arguing about which one of them was the greatest and who was going to sit at his right hand and his left hand. This is a very human thing to do. The comparison game and, oh, you're, you're not the same as us, or this church is spirit-filled, but that one's not. We've got to be very careful how we come to our conclusions. And Paul will qualify it in verse 9 by saying, if they, the widow and the unmarried, do not have self-control, if they cannot contain, that's the King James Version, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn, and here, with passion is the NIV, New King James. But the idea is, if a person doesn't have the gift of singleness, then they would be constantly desiring the companionship and intimacy of a sexual relationship within marriage and would live a frustrated life. So Paul says, no, if you don't have that endowment from God, if you don't have that gift from God, then get married. It's okay. In the beginning, God said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Paul says, look, chill out, get married. It's okay. It's God's plan too. You could be spiritual if you're married and spiritual if you're not married. Either way, you can serve the Lord. Either way, take it as how God has wired you, how he's called you. Your family can be a witness to Christ as your singleness can as well. Well, what do you do if you're not married right now, but you feel like you want to get married? I've got four things. Just by time and experience, here they go. First, seek to be the right person yourself with your relationship with the Lord. Make sure you're the right person to have someone else want to marry you. Amen? Work on yourself. We all say that. Make sure your relationship's strong with the Lord. Number two, if God has put someone in your life and they are a believer and you are on the same page spiritually, then marriage is God's plan for fulfilling your desire as a person. If those things are in order, they're truly a believer, not they told you, oh, yeah, I go to church, sure, I'll go with you. No, 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 no. Make sure they're a born-again believer. And young ladies who are if you're courting with a gentleman right now, it would be good if you see some leadership qualities in him that he can lead you closer to Jesus. Now, you might be further along than him, but the, the model here is that he's supposed to lead you to the Lord. So make sure that there's at least a growing faith there. Number three, before you get married, search the scriptures, pray for wisdom, think soberly, and get godly counsel from parents, pastors, and trusted friends because they will tell you the truth about that person because you have the goo-goo-ga-ga eyes. Oh, he's so wonderful and beautiful. And, ah, they call their friends. Ah. I mean, you won't believe he dropped a flower by today. Oh, he wrote me a note. He doesn't drool out of the right side of his mouth like my previous person I was dating. What? <laughs> Things are looking up. All right. <laughs> I'm with you. Do you know uh, how you can tell which way the stage is leaning in a church? By which side of the mouth the drool is coming down from the drummer? Sorry, Marcus. Now, I can get away with that because I'm a drummer. Okay, that was just, that was free. That was just a little extra humor for you this morning. 
Maybe. <laughs> if someone close to you, parent, pastor, trusted friend, is going, you might want to take note of that because the people that love you the most will tell you the truth. How many of us could say, oh, I ignored what parents and trusted friends said and I plunged into the deep end and oh, no water was in the pool. <laughs> Thank God for second chances. <laughs> Worship and spend time in prayer, number four. Bible study. Make sure that your contentment is in Christ and that you have a realistic expectation of what this person's going to do for you. Be optimistic, but realistic. Your spouse will not complete, complete you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know that's a line in a movie. You complete me. <laughs> I know. And it's romantic. However, you are complete in Christ. Now that other person can bless you. They can be a life partner, but they ain't going to complete you. Jesus Christ completes you. You are complete in him, Colossians 2.10. And please, please, please go through premarital counseling. But it's five one-hour sessions. Yes! For the rest of your life, those five hours will be invaluable. Trust me. Get Premarital, oh, we don't need premarital. Yes, you do. You need 50 hours, not five hours. <laughs> Ask anybody next to you who's married. All right? Verse 10. But to the married, new category, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife, speaking to the married, should not leave her husband. The idea of leaving is, instead of cleaving, you leave. This is the implicitly divorce. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. It seems like in this culture, men had all the rights that they could send their wife away. That's why the language is this way. Paul says in verse 10, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. What does he mean? He means that the Lord taught on this, the Lord Jesus taught on this in his earthly ministry. Turn to Matthew 19. Let me show you what Paul's referring to. Matthew 19. There was all kinds of uh, extremes about divorce in the ancient world when Jesus walked the earth. A couple of major schools, one very liberal, that said you could divorce your wife for any reason. She oversalted the food if she burnt your toast. She didn't make your waffle to the right uh, crispiness. You could divorce her for just about any reason at all. There was another school, very conservative, that said, no, you can never divorce. It is never right. So here's what Jesus says. Check it out. It's Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees, who were known to divorce their wives over and over again for any reason, came to Jesus, testing him and asking, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Jesus answered and said, Matthew 19, 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, 
apparently Jesus believes that Genesis is true, made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27, Jesus quoting the Old Testament. And said, Genesis 2.24, now he quotes, for this, man, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they, the married couple, are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together in the covenant of marriage is the idea. Let no man separate. Don't let that person push divorce. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, that's Genesis, what he just quoted, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, <laughs> notice, it's better not to marry then, right? But he said to them, not all men, men can accept this statement but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Can I put it another way? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 7. Schrage, uh, a commentator on scripture, says that the pneumatics of Paul's time, the hyper-spiritualists who believe that they were now in the resurrection state like the angels, so they should not be married anymore or they should remain celibate, he contends that they were ignoring the words of Jesus and saying that the Holy Spirit had told them to be single and celibate even though Jesus had given a different command they believed they were hearing from the Spirit despite what the Word of God says. Okay, now all of us might say, wow, that's ridiculous until we realize that that's being done in our day. When we hear someone say, oh, God told me that I should get a divorce. Or God told me that I should be with this other person. And we go to a Bible verse with that person and we say, wait a minute, this is what the Bible says. Oh, but I heard from God, and he said this is what I should do, and this is okay in my case. <laughs> and all God's people say, what? <laughs> say, what? See, this is what we can do. We can, we can somehow spiritualize that we're the exception to the rule. I've got news for you. You ain't. And neither am I. And we can justify things however we want to justify them. People were doing it in Paul's day. And Paul doesn't even mention that Jesus said you could divorce if there was adultery. He just says, look, I'm saying to you, don't think that you can wiggle out by saying that you've heard the voice of the Spirit when you're contradicting the clear uh, testimony of Scripture. Maybe someone might say, I don't like being married. Someone might say, I married the wrong person. Someone might say, if I weren't married to him or her, I could do this or that for the Lord. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. In one sense, we've all married the wrong person. Remember last week? If we think that that person is going to complete us, quotes, or solve all of our problems, there's no perfect person you're going to marry. 
what God calls us to do is to ground our marriage in the foundation of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Then we can be what we need to be for one another. And so they were saying, well, celibacy is the proper lifestyle. And Paul's saying, no, if you're married, stay committed to your spouse. A study from the early 90s showed that the top reason for divorce was people saying we're growing apart. The number two reason was not feeling loved or appreciated by one's spouse. We can all understand that. We can all understand how we've been let down and hurt, or we've maybe let others down. But if we have an other-centered, sacrificial, I owe you, I'm going to put your needs above my own, and it goes in both directions, it's a beautiful marriage. A woman was suffering from depression, so her concerned husband took her to a psychiatrist. The doctor listened to the couple talk about their relationship. Then he said, the treatment that I've prescribed for you is really quite simple. With that, he went over to the man's wife, gathered her up in his arms, did the doctor, and gave her a big kiss. He then stepped back and looked at the woman's glowing face and broad smile. Turning to the woman's husband, he said, see, that's all she needs is you to put that back in your life with her, hug her and kiss her. Expressionless, the husband said, okay, doc, I can bring her here on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I, I was hearing someone talk about marriage, and they were saying that one of the things that can keep romance flowing in your marriage is an intimate, long kiss every day. And they were saying something like 15 to 20 seconds. All right? <laughs> Woo! That was Paul in the front row. Paul's taking sign-ups for the Valentine's dinner. Now, I will say this. There's some, there's a little bit of exception with Paul, because if you get close to Paul, he will give you a holy kiss, and then you'll have to talk about the Super Bowl after that. But anyway, never mind. But they're saying... There, there's something that gets released, some chemicals that get released in our brain, e even through a long kiss that doesn't necessarily lead to sexual intimacy in your marriage. And we can even get away from that. We can get away from long uh, kisses that way. And uh, maybe that's something that you've lost in your marriage. Now maybe it's just a pet. How you doing, honey? Well, we could do better than that. Oh, Lord, help me. I don't, I don't even know what. <laughs> no. <laughs> My wife's right here, so I got to really be. <laughs> that is one thing that she does tell me, gentlemen. Is, see, I like to have the little shadow thing. She, oh, it's spiky, and, you know. <laughs> Let it grow. All right, I'm with you. Boy, we digress here. I... So, here's the thing. If you need romance to be turned up a notch in your marriage, you could make that happen. How about a date night? How, how about uh, a romantic restaurant? How about something to just revisit that area of your life that's been suffering, if it's been suffering? Years ago, Brenda and I were at a party, and we were sitting on a couch together. We were married. It's okay. And uh, <laughs> we, we kissed in front of these people, okay? And it was kind of a long kiss. And the, the husband who had been married for, to his wife for a long time, we were newly married, said, Look, honey, 
that they still kiss that way. Isn't that amazing? And sometimes we can get that way with our marriages. We can take our spouse for granted. Look, we need to keep the romance alive, and that's a good thing. Some of you may need to be reconciled in that sense. Notice uh, in verse 11, Paul says, look, if something has happened, he says, if, if this has happened, then remain 7-11 of 1 Corinthians unmarried or else be reconciled. And some of you are still married, but you need to be reconciled in some areas. And look, the gospel is a message of reconciliation, right? It's, it's us telling people, be reconciled to God. Because God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How, pray tell, can we declare a message of reconciliation to a lost and dying world if we cannot even be reconciled to our spouse? If we're letting little petty things or even big things now divide us and the enemy's got a foothold in there and he's muddied the message that our marriages are supposed to convey. Boy, we need the grace of God. And finally, the last section is to the rest, which is going to address those of you who are married to unbelievers. This is verses 12 through 16. Now, to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Let me pause here to say to you that this does not mean that what Paul's about to say is his opinion or uninspired scripture. He's just saying the Lord did not give direct teaching in this case. So he's saying this is an apostolic command from me. This is still scripture, authoritative, God-breathed scripture. The point is, is that the Lord Jesus didn't teach on this, so I can't take you to a passage that he addressed this. Everybody with me? It's still scripture. That if any brother has a wife, 12, who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, the unbeliever does, let him, the husband, not send her away. So some people said, I've become a Christian. I'm in the city of Corinth. I'm a Christian now. My spouse is not, so maybe I should send my spouse away because they're not a Christian. We're unequally yoked now, right? Paul says, wrong. If you, one of you became a Christian, at, let's say you're both unbelievers. One of you got saved. The other one remains a non-Christian or you thought you married a Christian, but now by all evidences, that person is not showing that they are a believer. Paul says, that's not a reason to divorce. If your spouse wants to stay in the marriage, then don't send them away. And if a woman, and a woman who has an, an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Stay in the marriage, even if you're married to an unbeliever. Full apostolic authority from the Apostle Paul. Side note. Paul does not think he was at liberty to create a command of Jesus, says Moffat. He points out that Paul's careful discrimination between a saying of the Lord and his own injunction tells us strongly against those who maintain that the early church was in the habit of producing a saying it needed and then ascribing that saying to Christ. He says it is historically of high importance that he, Paul, did not feel at liberty to create a saying of Jesus, even when, as here, it would have been highly convenient in order to settle a disputed point of Christian behavior. Everybody with me? Some of the skeptics of the Bible say, oh, they just made up Scripture to address different situations, and they would ascribe it to the Lord. The Lord Jesus said this. No, Paul doesn't do that. 
Paul says, the Lord didn't teach on this, but I'm giving you the truth from the Lord on this. And then he says, the unbelieving husband, 14, is sanctified through his believing wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And some of you are saying, what in the world is Paul talking about? Well, there were those in Corinth that believed that if you were married to an unbeliever, that made you unclean. So you, you get saved, and let's say they're still a pagan. Maybe they're going to the pagan temple, or they worship a false god or goddess. And you're in a covenant marriage with them where the two become one in the covenant. And someone might say, if I am intimate with my spouse or just by the nature of our covenant, am I unclean because they're not a Christian? And Paul says, no, you're not unclean because you're married to an unbeliever. In fact, just the opposite. The unbeliever is actually sanctified by you. In what sense? Well, it doesn't mean that the unbeliever is saved just because you're saved. Because later, Paul will say, who knows whether you will save your spouse. So that's not it. People are not saved by osmosis. People are not saved just because a relative is a Christian who lives in the next room or even in the same room. That's not how salvation works. But in some way, that unbelieving spouse married to a believing uh, spouse is sanctified. Sanctified means set apart or even made holy. So what is Paul saying? How could that person be made holy? Well, it's not salvation because the other person still needs to be saved. They're categorized as an unbeliever. So what does it mean? Just quickly, some major views. Some believe that sanctified means just set apart for God's purposes. That somehow being married to a believer affords that person the blessings that come to a believer. For example, Joseph in Genesis 39 and 41. Unbelievers around him recognized God's blessing was on Joseph. And Joseph's being blessed by God somehow spilled over to pagan uh, masters and uh, those overseeing the prison. You work for a Christian company, your boss may see the hand of God on you. His business may be blessed simply because you work there and the blessings of God are in your life. Everybody with me? So that may be what Paul is saying. Others hold that the pagan is set apart to receive a special Christian witness and influence. He's set apart, that is, in the sense that every day he gets to see the witness of the Holy Spirit living in that life of the believer. The unbelieving, uh, number three, the unbeliever willing to continue in the marriage with the believer is made part, says some scholars, of a covenantal status of the believer. Since the two become one in marriage, their union somehow brings that unbeliever into a special category where the Lord might bless them and uh, uh, you know, give them an extra look at the gospel. And let me just read this because I think it'll help. This is not some magical process or transference of holiness. The idea, says one author, hinges on the two becoming one flesh and God's blessing of marriage. Paul is not arguing for sanctification by proxy, but making an argument against divorce. His basic argument is that mixed marriages, believer-unbeliever, have the same status as Christian marriages and should not be abandoned. There's still a covenant before God. The assumption behind Paul's case here must be that the Corinthians also would have thought it absurd to consider their children, the children of these mixed unions, to be unholy 
or polluted. You, you are married to an unbeliever. Uh, the wife gets pregnant. A child is born. Is that child unholy because there's an unbeliever in the covenant? No, says Paul. And if your children aren't unholy, then neither are you unholy because you're married to an unbeliever. In fact, the opposite, the unbeliever gets a close-up look at the grace of God in your life. Amen? Oh, that was a little bit weak, but there you go. I hope you understood it. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, wants a divorce, Paul says, let him leave. The brother or the sister, Christian, is not under bondage in such cases. God has called us to peace. If the unbelieving spouse demands a divorce, says, you become a Christian, that's not what I want, this is not what I signed up for, for then the believing spouse is free. Free in what sense? I would argue free to remarry. Take a look at verse 39 of the same chapter. 39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, note it, Bible students, only in the Lord. Why did Paul say that? Because oftentimes people who want companionship marry an unbeliever because they're desperate to be with somebody. Paul says, look, if your spouse, unbelieving spouse, left you, wanted to divorce, if your spouse died, if your spouse committed adultery, there's three reasons I can see in Scripture for remarriage. One, there was adultery in the marriage. It doesn't mean that you have to get divorced, but there would be grounds for divorce and remarriage. Number two, unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse. You're now free. You're not under bondage there. Number three reason for remarriage is your spouse has died. Romans 7, you can look at verses 2 and 3. In these three cases, my understanding of the Bible, remarriage is permissible. But remember, we have to say that there's many layers to many situations. And certainly, if you've done this the wrong way, it's not the unforgivable sin, but it is something that we need to see God's heart on. And then finally, for how do you know, O wife 16, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In Esther 4, when Mordecai was trying to encourage Esther to go to the king and try to save the Jewish people, uh, Mordecai said these famous words, Who knows? Maybe you've come to royalty for such a time as this. Who knows? And if you say it in a Jewish way, who knows? Now, if you're Esther... And cousin Mordecai, your adoptive father, says, who knows? You might say, can you do a little better than that? What do you mean, who knows? <laughs> like, how about, I'm certain. Uh, this is going to work out great. I know he's going to hold the golden scepter out. You're not going to die. What do you mean, who knows? But life is filled sometimes with who knows. We don't know the answer to every question. But maybe, just maybe, if you stay with your spouse and you are a regular witness to them, and I'm not talking about putting Bible, gospel tracts in between the cheese and bologna in their sandwich for lunch, <laughs> but I'm talking about a witness before them, even without saying a word, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. God's called us to peace. Who knows? You may win your spouse. You may win them to the gospel. And Paul says, I become all things to all men, that by means of this I may win or save some of them. 
You see, this means that marriage has to be seen, that it's not just about you. It could be that God has allowed this to happen so that your spouse becomes a Christian, which means that you're going to have to lay down some of your rights, some of your hopes and dreams, maybe what you've always desired to have a, a Christian spouse to pray with you and go to church with you. Maybe God's saying, look, that's not where you are, so I'm going to give you the grace that you need because it may be that your spouse is going to become a Christian because you're in their life. This takes a, a different look at uh, marriage, but it is God's heart that we might win the lost. Of course, we need forgiveness in all these areas because marriage can be hard and there's a lot of complicated situations, but the Bible does address them. And this is what I would ask you. Are you willing to do life God's way? I believe that God will give you the power that you need if you're not in the best situation. And if you have, you know, found yourself on the other side of something that maybe you would say, you know, what I just read, maybe I'm not in a scriptural situation, then God's grace is there for you as well. And you can start again right where you are. And if you need help with that, we would be happy to talk to anybody if you're in a difficult spot. We are not here to condemn anybody. We are not here to beat you up from this pulpit. But we are here to see what God says and then ask him to give us the grace to live it out. Father, thank you for this morning together, this wonderful church body. We're going to get ready to take elements of communion that signify and remember our relationship with you. And they look forward to a day when we will be with you in a something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We anticipate that day with great joy. One day we're going to see the one who loved us to the uttermost, the one who died for us, our great Savior, our King, and even the one who says he is married to us. And Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come to a table, a table that speaks of reconciliation and blood that was shed and love that was demonstrated while we were yet sinners. I pray that that same grace can apply to every hurt in every situation that may be in this room or someone who hears this later, that your grace is sufficient, that you, every sin we've ever committed was nailed to that cross, that we are forgiven in Jesus, and we thank you for that precious blood spilled for us. And where we need healing, Lord, may you grant healing. And I'm going to ask you to keep your head and heart bowed. If you, you don't know Jesus, you've not met this great Savior and King, you've been trying to do it alone, or maybe you're a prodigal and you've been running from God, or maybe you're a person who says, my marriage is in trouble and we need a resurrection well, just cry out to the Lord. If you're not a believer, just something like this. Lord Jesus, save me. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you that you were willing to die for me. I put my trust and hope in you. Please wash away my sins. Forgive me, Lord. Give me a new heart and a new start. Maybe for you it's rededication. Maybe your marriage needs to be rededicated to the Lord. Maybe it's just your part. Do some business right now with the Lord. And if you're at a good place in your marriage and you're celebrating your spouse today,
then just love them all the more. If you're a widow or you've been abandoned or you find yourself alone today and, the God's, and God's given you the gift of singleness, then use your life for his glory. And if not, I pray that he will grant you the desires of your heart with a life partner. Father, thank you so much for your word and your grace and your love for us. What would we do without your grace in our lives? We'd be lost. So may your living waters just flow over this precious people as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.